I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How's it going, everybody? I'm not George Galloway, but this is the mother of all talk shows. My name is Jackson Hinkle, and I am very happy to be filling in for Mr. Galloway tonight. He's off on important business elsewhere, but we've got a lot of really important stuff to talk about here tonight. We're going to be having on some incredible guests like Max Blumenthal, Paz Aldean, and Dan Cohen to discuss a wide range of subjects, including but not limited to the Israeli genocide on Gaza, the situation in the Ukraine war, and recent news about what is going on in Venezuela in their neighboring country, Guyana. Okay, all of that and more on the Mother of All talk shows. I can't wait to get into it with all of you. You are listening to the Mother of All talk shows podcast with George Galloway. How's it going, everybody? Again, it's Jackson Hinkle standing in for George Galloway tonight on the Mother of All talk shows. And we've got some really important subjects to discuss. If You watch the mainstream media, you probably wouldn't notice, but the rest of the 21st century is being decided today as President Vladimir Putin flies to the UAE, which actually is where George Galloway is right now. He's having meetings. Mr. Putin's having meetings with the UAE government. He's since flown to Saudi Arabia and he's meeting with Mohammed bin Salman. And he was received in both of these countries with ceremonies the likes of which we've never seen before. In fact, he was running off the plane to go and give a big handshake to Mohammed bin Salman. Unlike Joe Biden, he didn't fall on his way down those plane steps to meet with MBS. After that, he's going back to Moscow to meet with the president of Iran tomorrow. Again, I really do mean it when I say that the world is changing right before our very eyes, all the while the mainstream media is ignoring it. They're choosing to hide it from the public. The public understands in my country, in the United States, as well as in wherever you probably live, if you're in a Western state right now, that the economic situation is not great. The EU is in the middle of an inflation crisis, an economic crisis, and in many countries, a recession. In the United States, we have 600,000 homeless individuals sleeping out on the streets each and every night, 60,000 of whom are homeless veterans who served our country abroad. Of course, the state of the U.S. dollar and the euro is not too great either. And Joe Biden's not helping that situation by continuing to ostracize the United States and all other Western governments on the global stage from BRICS partners like Russia, China, and newly added Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example. The situation is quite grim, and that's why they're hiding the truth from you. When it comes to Russia, when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to the situation in the Arab states, and when it comes to even in Latin America with what we're going to be talking about tonight in Venezuela, we can see whatever the mainstream media is selling is a lie, but we can see that the multipolar world is taking shape. The British Empire is dead. The era of unipolarity by the United States is over. 
And the rest of the world, for the first time, is getting a chance to breathe. The boot is being removed from their neck. So let's take a look at these events and break down what's happened. When it comes to the war in Ukraine, you were all told the United States and the Western partners would support Ukraine for as long as it took to score a victory over the Russian Federation. Now, if you have half a brain and at least two working brain cells, you know that that was a lie on its face because the U.S. is going to do what it always does, is in the U.K. is going to do that as well. And that means they are going to use Ukraine as a pawn in this proxy battle for as long as they want to and then throw Zelensky to the curb. Okay, but before they do that, of course, they're going to be funneling him millions and millions of dollars and all his cronies as well. And that's exactly what we're seeing play out right now. This very week, the U.S. State Department has come out and announced that the rope that they've set for the supply of Ukraine funds is running short. That if the U.S. Congress doesn't take action and supply more funds to Ukraine, which I'm sure they probably will, that the Ukraine war will have to come to an end. Right now, secret negotiations are reportedly taking place between the Russian Federation and Ukraine and their Western handlers. And of course, as we all assume, these negotiations are entertaining nothing other than exactly what Putin wanted. We were asked at the start of this war, you know, free thinkers like you and me, we were asked, how is this war going to end? Lots of people didn't trust the mainstream media narrative because they've already been lied to about covid They've been lied to about Russiagate. They've been lied to about a whole host of subjects going back decades and decades and decades. And the free thinkers said, well, if you look at Russia, they scored a huge victory in the bloodiest war of all time against Nazi Germany in World War II. They scored a huge victory against Napoleon in that war as well, which was open on their Western front. And now they're probably going to score a huge victory against Ukraine. Russia has a population four times the size of Ukraine. Again, you don't need to be a brainiac to understand what was going to happen. All the while, the mainstream media told you that Ukraine's winning. We're going to supply them with the funds and the military weaponry that they need to win at whatever cost and for however long it takes. But the facts didn't pan out. Today, as I sit here, 88,000 square kilometers of Ukrainian territory has now been integrated into the Russian Federation. That's forever gone. The maps have changed. And that's what the multipolar world looks like. When it comes to the death toll, this is something that many of us warned about and pleaded for peace over because we knew the death toll was going to be so high. As it stands today, over 400,000 Ukrainian soldiers, men and women, are dead. Probably 100, 150,000 Russian soldiers are dead as well. Those deaths never had to happen, but they did because the West got cocky. The West believed that they could tell the rest of the world how to live, how to accept life, how they'll be governed, what currencies they're going to use, what border disputes they're going to raise a fist over, and that would be that. But again, some leaders have balls. Vladimir Putin, he has balls, and he said, no, that's not how it's going to be. You're going to respect our country, you're going to respect our ambitions, and you're going to respect mainly those ethnic Russians in the Donbass that are being slaughtered and have been slaughtered for the past eight years, in which Russia has tried to push forward negotiations. Okay, well, now we're beginning to see the writing on the wall. Even U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham has come out and announced that he'd rather see the U.S. Congress focus on issues such as the U.S. border rather than the Ukrainian border. <laughs> I never thought I'd live to see the day in which Lindsey Graham says something like that. He's the same guy who visited Kiev and met with 
President Zelensky, the puppet of the West, and told him that every dollar spent towards Ukraine is a dollar well spent because it's bringing about dead Russians. And now he even sounds like the Putin propagandist that he condemned months ago. Let's shift gears and look at what's happened in Israel. The Trump administration tried to push through the Abraham Accords, which was a much more long-winded effort than just his administration. And the Abraham Accords were an effort to normalize relations between all of these Arab Gulf states and Israel. They almost succeeded in that effort. They almost pushed the issue of Palestinian resistance out of the forefront of history for the remainder of eternity. It wasn't until October 7th took place and events which were, albeit tragic, showed the world that the Palestinian resistance was not over. The world once again heard the cries, heard the screams of the innocent Palestinians who were being locked away in Israeli prisons, who were being tortured, who were being killed, bones being broken in those Israeli prisons. They heard the cries and the pleas for fresh air from those Palestinians who were suffering in the open-air prison in Gaza. And they also began to reflect on the stories of the Palestinians in the West Bank, 173 of whom were killed before October 7th in 2023 alone. I always find it funny and really sad that there's so many individuals who will tell you that, well, Jackson, you, you, you can't possibly support the Palestinian resistance because they started this war. They started this war why, why were there no Arab Gulf states? Why were there no Arab states that were frustrated, that were launching attacks against the West or our Western partners before 1948? They tell you, but Jackson, you, you must condemn Hamas. If we wipe Hamas off the face of the earth, we will have peace in the Middle East. It's achievable. Well, if that's true, why was there not peace in the Middle East before 1987 when the organization of Hamas was established? They say, well, Jackson, okay, at the least, you have to be able to acknowledge that what took place on October 7th was the start of this war, and every death that has taken place in Gaza, in the West Bank, is on the hands of Hamas. There was a truce before October 7th, Jackson. Was there? I don't understand how a truce before October 7th could have resulted in Again, between 100 and 300 deaths in the West Bank alone before October 7th in 2023. That doesn't sound like any truce that I want to be a part of. But the Palestinian resistance is putting their best foot forward. And the rest of the world is waking up to what's going on. Vladimir Putin has shipped tons and tons and tons of humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. And just today, again, he met with the leaders of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and reestablished his support, the creation of a sovereign, independent Palestinian state on the 1967 borders. States all across the world fail to recognize Israel's statehood, but do recognize Palestine. It's really interesting what's happening. For the first time in my lifetime, I'm born in 1999, the rest of the world is not bending the knee to the West. They're not going along with whatever preconceived notions and narratives they've established about how the world has to run. They're saying, no, we, we are going to fight for our sovereignty. We are going to fight for our independence. We're going to fight for our future. That's what the Palestinians are doing. Despite how many lies, falsehoods, 
and outright fabrications the Zionists put forward, the truth is coming to the surface. Now, I'm not necessarily hopeful for the plight of the Palestinian people and the plight of the people in Gaza. Make no mistake about it. They've got a very tough road ahead of them. They've got a tough road ahead of them because of the fact that the U.S. is continuing to supply Israel with all the weaponry, all of the aid, and all of the missiles that they need to continue this genocide. Despite the fact that over 16,000 individuals have been killed in Gaza thus far. And if you want to challenge me on that fact, do it. Because just today, the Times of Israel reported a source from the IDF, the Israeli military, who said on record that the reports from Hamas and the Palestinian Health Ministry about 16,000 dead Gazans are actually relatively correct. It's pretty correct. They also admitted that far more civilians have been killed than Hamas fighters. The idea that Israel is going to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth is truly a non-starter. The idea that Israel is going to get back all their hostages, it could have happened. Hamas put forward the opportunity for that to take place. When before the Israeli invasion began, Hamas told Israel, if you stop the bombardment, we'll free all of the hostages. Of course, in return for our own hostages that are being held in Israeli prisons and have been for years without trial, without any charges, without just detention. Israel declined to move forward with those negotiations and instead move forward with their invasion. Now, one interesting fact about that, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel just yesterday had a meeting with the families of hostages who are still being held by Hamas, and he told those families, there is no way I'm going to be able to free all of the hostages. The families, the parents, the loved ones of those hostages were shocked. They couldn't believe what they were hearing from Mr. Netanyahu. But they were led to believe that Netanyahu cared about the hostages. They were led to believe that Netanyahu cared about Gaza, the people of Palestine, or the people of anywhere. Netanyahu doesn't care about anything from what I imagine. He doesn't care about anything besides the future of his political career. I know that sounds cynical, but it's the truth. A new report from Heretz just came out, and we're going to be discussing this tonight with our guest, Max Blumenthal, who's going to be joining us shortly. The article writes, top defense officials in Israel held urgent consultations the night before October 7th about a possible Hamas attack. No one, no one in the IDF notified the Nova Music Festival organizers or the ravers who were present at the festival. You have to ask the question, why? And I think there's a few answers that could be debated, but I don't know if we'll ever really know. I know what's for certain is that the globalists that are pushing to maintain this unipolar world order, they want Netanyahu out as well. They want him out for different reasons, though. They want Netanyahu out of power in Israel because they want a more benevolent leader in Israel. They want a more liberal leader in Israel. Maybe, in fact, even one of the attendees of the Nova Music Festival, they'll run around as a candidate for prime minister of Israel next. They want someone leading Israel who's going to carry out the genocide on the people of Gaza in a humane manner. They don't want someone in power who's going to slaughter 16,000 Gazans and make the world, including Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, shake their heads and support the Palestinian resistance. 
They don't want someone in power who's willing to do such absurd and criminal things that it might just provoke an all-out broader war between, say, Israel and Iran or Israel and Egypt or Israel and Turkey. They don't want that. They don't want a leader in power in Israel who's going to bomb the Red Cross, bomb Doctors Without Borders, bomb the United Nations schools, the UN RWA. They don't, they don't want that. They want a humanitarian leader that can put a nice face on the genocide. So one of the questions I'm going to be asking Dan Cohen tonight, another great investigative journalist that has worked and actually been in Gaza multiple times, is are we about to witness the end of Netanyahu's career? Is his time up? We'll have to wait and see. The last subject we're going to be discussing tonight is the situation in Venezuela, which also presents an incredible uh, opportunity for us to look at how the world is changing in this multipolar era. Now, over the cries and the screams of the people of Gaza, you may not have heard about what's going on in Venezuela, but it's actually really, really important. You see, Venezuela is bordered by a country called Guyana. Most people don't know about it. Most people, if you told them that there was a country called Guyana in Latin America, they'd laugh in your face and say you're making it up. But that's actually the truth. Guyana is a country that borders Venezuela, and there's a region of Guyana called Guyana Essequibo. Now, Guyana Essequibo is a region that was stolen from Venezuela by the British Empire years and years and years ago. Venezuela, for years, under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro, tried to engage in dialogue with the government of Guyana to establish some sort of a mediation effort about that disputed territory. They understood that that was rightfully theirs and it was stolen by the British Empire and Guyana as a country inherited it. Now, in 2015, Guyana was able to locate dense fields of oil and gas reserves in the Guyana Essequibo region, again, which was stolen by the British Empire from Venezuela and handed over to Guyana. You wouldn't be surprised if I told you that the entire political leadership in Guyana is bought and paid for still today by the United States and by the British government. You can look at photos of the president of Guyana online, speaking at the Clinton Global Initiative, speaking and meeting with world leaders at the World Economic Forum. He's a globalist pawn and puppet. And that's why just a few months ago, the president of Guyana decided he was going to unilaterally invite ExxonMobil and other major oil monopolies, including the U.S. military, to come into Guyana Essequibo, this disputed territory, and begin stealing the oil. Venezuela didn't like that. Nicolas Maduro wasn't having it because despite all his best intentions and efforts of establishing peace and mediation efforts, the land was stolen, and now it's going to be unilaterally exploited by a U.S. bought and paid for government in Guyana. The oil, the gas will be stripped away and they will be undercutting Venezuela's oil economy in the process. That's why just this week, Venezuela established a public referendum on the annexation of Guyana Essequibo as the 24th state of Venezuela. Officially on the Venezuelan books, Guyana Essequibo has now been voted by a broad majority, 97 or 99 percent, my numbers are correct, for Guyana Essequibo to now become the 24th state of Venezuela. Only problem is now is potentially going to spark a broader war in the region 
in which the United States will come in and defend the territory against Venezuela, who's trying to incorporate it back into their country. All of these subjects will be touched in tonight's uh, stories as we dive into our first guest, Max Blumenthal. Uh, we're going to be talking about the situation in Israel primarily with him. But make no mistake about it, each story that we address tonight is deeply integral to the changing world order and the multipolar world that is taking shape. First, we have a quick break, though, and we'll be back with uh, Max Blumenthal to discuss the situation in Gaza. This is the Mother of All Talk Shows. I'm Jackson Hinkle. Thank you so much for tuning in. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Thanks for joining me again, everybody. My name is Jackson Hinkle. I'm filling in for George Galloway on the Mother of All Talk Shows tonight. It's quite the honor. Now, we have an email uh, I'd like to read off before we get into our next guest. This email is from John regarding Palestine. John says, Jackson, have you noticed not one fighter or weapon has been seen being pulled from the bombing rubble? Clear proof this is an extermination bombing and thus genocidal war crimes for both Israel and the bomb supplier, the United States. Outstanding show, John, from Hong Kong. Very interesting. Yeah, it's 100%. And, you know, Israel knows exactly what they are doing. They are launching these bombs, which, by the way, cannot penetrate down 15 meters into the ground where these Hamas tunnels are. Even if they claim they're trying to hit these Hamas tunnels, their bombs don't penetrate deep enough into the ground to actually take out the tunnels. They know what they're doing. They're targeting hospitals, churches, schools, refugee camps. And just over the past 24, 48 hours, we saw that Israel notified all residents in the north of Gaza to, again, flee south. And then they started to bomb southern Gaza. In Khan Yunus, they were bombing. They bombed an entire neighborhood, the journalist uh, Motaz Azais, and they took out an entire family. Women, children, fathers, mothers. It's a gruesome sight. I'm sure you've all seen it. But uh, yes, this is a genocide 100%. And that's why we must bring it to an end. Uh, for those of you who are listening in from around the world, I want to remind you all, you can call into the show and uh, talk to me directly. If you're in Canada or the United States, you can call in at the number one 844 if you're in the United Kingdom, you can call in at 08081-965522. If you're anywhere else in the world, you can call in at 
2625. We also have an email. It's going to be on air at moats.tv if you'd like to reach us there directly. And, you know, I always like to talk to average individuals about these subjects because the fact of the matter is average individuals in each country on every, you know, country on the face of the planet understand what's happening right now. The mainstream media is lying to you. Yes. The politicians are lying to you. Of course, the financial elite, the banksters, Wall Street, City of London are undoubtedly lying to you because it's in their fiscal interest to lie. But the average people are waking up. We all see the truth. We see what's happening. We see the genocide that's taking place in Gaza. We've seen the bodies and the photos and the evidence of the ethnic Russians who were killed in the Donbass and that Putin is now liberating from the Ukrainians. And we understand that as much as the United States and the United Kingdom point the finger at countries like Israel uh, and say they are the heroes in this situation, and groups like Hamas or other groups in Lebanon are terrorists, the fact of the matter is that they are the terrorists. The United States are the terrorists. The United Kingdom are the terrorists. For some reason, maybe it's because they're being paid to lie, the mainstream media will never address this fact. They'll never, they'll never ask the question, why is it that the world is so caught up in calling groups X, Y, or Z terrorists when our own government is responsible for most of the world's terror in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, the dirty war in Syria, what we did in Libya, Yugoslavia, now Ukraine, and now Gaza. Couldn't be any more clear to me or to probably all of you, and that's why it's important to address these facts. Next, we're going to be having on Max Blumenthal. I think he's going to be joining us shortly. Uh, but, you know, Max has been doing incredible journalism over at the Gray Zone. He's an author. He's a journalist. And he just put out a really interesting story at the Gray Zone. You can find it at thegrayzone.com about how a lot of these stories and narratives that are being put forward about the events on October 7th are actually just lies, patently lies. We've seen Haaretz come out and actually confirm some of the reporting that Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone was first to report on. For example, Max Blumenthal, not too many days after October 7th and the horrific events took place then occurred, reported at the Gray Zone that he found it a bit suspicious that there were Israeli Apache attack helicopters that were called in to fire on positions during the invasion of Israel on October 7th. Of course, he asks worthwhile questions, such as, why were those Apache attack helicopters called up? Who did the Apache attack helicopters and Israeli tanks fire upon when they were called? There were even firsthand accounts from Kibbutz Buri, one of the main sites of some of these horrific crimes on October 7th that left many civilians dead, uh, who came out and admitted on, on his Israeli state radio after Max did his reporting at the Gray Zone, that yes, some of the civilians who met their tragic end on October 7th were not killed by Hamas, but instead by Israeli tanks. So we are going to talk about all of that and more with Max Blumenthal. Right now, everyone be sure to drop a like on this stream, share it far and wide, and subscribe. Max, thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, good to have you here. I know you're having a busy day. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you, Jackson. Can good you to me? see you as well. Now, I don't know if you got to uh, catch this yet, but 
Haaretz just put out a very interesting report, which said, and I'll read it again for everybody, that <clears throat> uh, top defense officials held urgent consultations the night before October 7th about a possible Hamas attack. No one in the IDF notified the Nova Music Festival organizers or ravers about this possible attack. Now, you've been doing incredible journalism over at the Gray Zone about what actually happened on October 7th. I encourage everyone to follow along with your work there. But what do you make about this new report from Haaretz? I mean, we're seeing so many reports suggesting some kind of foreknowledge of these attacks, and I don't really know what to make of it, that someone shorted the stock market with the expectation of a major attack on Israel and made a ton of money. Um that Israel had known about it months in advance. I, I, I chalk it all. I, I mean, I chalk most of it up to Israeli hubris and that their intelligence services are actually kind of a paper tiger. They're not so brilliant and that they were operating under the illusion of total control over the Palestinian population. I, I think a lot of this thinking, the, 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 the idea that Israel would have, that its military intelligence apparatus would have allowed this to happen doesn't give enough credit to the Palestinian counterintelligence operatives who figured out how to make this operation take place, or to the prime minister of Gaza, Yahya Senwar, who was the mastermind of the entire operation, and basically duped the Israelis into believing that he only wanted an economic peace with Israel and concealed the the plans, including uh, plans distributed to over 1,000 well-trained or moderately trained commandos to attack Israeli military bases. So this was kind of a, in some ways, it was a masterstroke by Palestinian armed factions. It was a it is a huge scandal for the Israeli intelligence services and the Israeli military, and things got really ugly at the Nova Electronic Music Festival because as an Israeli police investigation showed, Hamas did not know that that was taking place. And as we now see, the Israeli authorities didn't take proper precautions. I, I can tell you, Jackson, that um, I, should, I should honestly put this video out because it's old video. It's like on my old YouTube account. But I went to a classical music conference co concert on the Gaza border where a famous Israeli conductor named Zubin Mehta conducted the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra with the explicit intent of blasting classical music into Gaza to civilize the savage natives and to convince them to release an Israeli soldier who is still captive, Gilad Shalit. And so it's like that. What makes you think that you can do that? Hold people in an open air prison and then hold a classical music conference or rave immediately on their border and that your safety is completely guaranteed as you continually bomb them and deprive them of basic uh, goods. And so uh, uh, things just really came to a head at the Nova Electronic Music Festival. I don't know exactly what happened there, but I'm starting to piece together what took place in general around its periphery and inside some of the kibbutzim where uh, there were hostage standoffs and it doesn't make Israel's military look any better. This is another massive scandal. I 100% agree. I also think it's a little bit odd that you have all of these media outlets like the New York Times and Haaretz who are saying that Israel had foreknowledge of this planned attack. It almost seems like 
they want to get Netanyahu out and put a more liberal face on the genocide. But I don't know. Exactly. I, I have another question for you, though, because the events on October 7th, of course, I think we all knew were going to lead to something of a military response from Israel beyond, beyond just bombings. And that's been this invasion. When it comes to the invasion, the Israeli military told us it was going to be a cakewalk. They acted like they were going to be in and out, and that was going to be it. They're going to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth and get back the hostages. What do you make of their invasion thus far? Have they been successful in their goals? And what do the casualties on the Israeli side look like? Yeah, just going back to the important point you made about these stories. I mean, a lot of this, the, the lead author on a lot of New York Times stories is Ronan Bergman, who's an Israeli journalist. And his book, Rise and Kill First, about Israel's assassination program is blurbed by a lot of the security chiefs, former Mossad chiefs, who are Netanyahu's chief adversaries. So they're his sources. And so I think we can deduce that, yeah, that's where those stories are coming from. As for Israel's military operation inside Gaza, well, two things have been proven false uh, that the Israeli military promised would come true by this point, that their military would be able to liberate the hostages, the captives through force. No, they've been freed through political negotiations, the kind that Hamas had could have been holding with them from day one. And two, that they would severely degrade Hamas's military and political infrastructure. And we can see from the release of the captives in the middle of Gaza City in a square where a hand is holding a dog tag belonging to an Israeli soldier, a memorial. Uh, sorry, a, a, sorry, a dog tag of an Israeli soldier is draped over a question mark to symbolize the missing Israeli soldiers who are nameless inside Gaza that the Israeli military refuses to acknowledge. That shows that Hamas can still come out through its armed wing, the Al-Qassam brigades, and control Gaza City, and that they were able to bring their constituents out to cheer for them as they released these hostages or captives, and that they were able to control the situation politically, to care for the captives, to give them medical care, all under the most intense genocidal bombing that we have ever seen in our lifetimes. At the same time, they're carrying out armed attacks, according to their military doctrine of ambush, surprise, close quarters combat on Israeli soldiers, particularly in the northern border areas and in the eastern border areas. And we saw we, we see scenes every day from Al-Qassam's media channels of them attacking soldiers with homemade weapons, uh, with homemade tandem rockets that are basically reverse engineered Russian anti-tank munitions. Uh, placing munitions on tanks directly, destroying these uh, $16 million armored vehicles and killing Israeli soldiers. And meanwhile, Israel is winning the war on Palestinian babies. They've killed, what, what are they? They're approaching like 9,000 women and children being killed now. Um, they're really degrading the um, female and baby infrastructure of Gaza as they completely fail militarily to, to achieve their goals. And I, this can be illustrated through sheer numbers. The Israeli military announced that it, they believe that they've killed one to 2,000 uh, mid-level Hamas commanders and Hamas fighters. Okay, one to 2,000 out of 15,000 civilians, which the Israeli uh, military acknowledges is an accurate number. Well, how many do they have to kill to succeed? If there are 30,000 Hamas fighters 
that would be like 300 to six, 300,000 to 600,000, um, 300,000 to 600,000 civilians killed in the Gaza Strip in order to eliminate Hamas. That's one out of every three people. That's would be the most insane genocide, one of the most insane genocides in history. And they're never going to get there. They're not going to be able to get there. So, so far, I'd say it's, it's a complete failure. Yeah, it really does look like a complete failure. And again, as with all these, you know, Western proxy wars and wars that they've launched themselves, it seems like we, we really don't have any clear and concise goals. If the goal was to get rid of uh, or to get the hostages, Netanyahu already seemingly admitted that he's not going to get all the hostages. If it's about wiping out Hamas, we know they can't do that. So what do you really think the goal is here? Is it about extending the political career of Netanyahu? Well, for Netanyahu, it's always about that. Every decision is about Netanyahu. And if you look at Netanyahu's history, before he was prime minister again, he was facing many prosecutions for corruption, for siphoning off money from German military aid, for example. His family's facing corruption charges. If he goes out of office, he's not immune any longer. And the Israeli public increasingly wants him out. The protests against Netanyahu are getting stronger and more ferocious. The military chiefs want him out. And everyone wants him out for a different reason, but he's the fall guy. And I think we're going, I would be shocked if his career lasted longer than this war. And the war is being Mm -hmm. uh, fought with impossible maximalist goals that are advanced by the U.S. administration, by Tony Blinken and Joe Biden. It's a goal of regime change, removing a political entity that has a mass constituent base. I mean, I've been to Hamas rallies as a journalist in Gaza. No one can bring out that many people in all of Palestine, and it's completely grassroots. So what are they going to do? That That's part of the genocidal mentality is they're trying to eliminate anyone who supports Hamas by killing them and their entire family by targeting them at home. And they're not going to be able to do that. The And the legend of these fighters within Palestine will live on. No one wants Mahmoud Abbas. And Mahmoud Abbas doesn't want to govern a Gaza Strip that's been destroyed and set back 20 to 50 years. They want to bring in Mahmoud Dahlan from the United Arab Emirates who was used to be the CIA's guy, he doesn't even want to go. He doesn't want to go back. So they don't have a plan for the day after. And if they honestly, if they get their way and they manage to destroy everything in Gaza and destroy Hamas, what will come after is some kind of insane nihilistic ISIS-like entity, uh, which is something Israel could actually Mm. possibly live with since they did in Syria. And one last question for you here, because sitting in America... It's almost election time. This is something that I think is weighing on a lot of people's minds. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, is taking huge uh, leads in all the polls that are taking place right now, especially in swing states. How do you think that this uh, U.S. support for the genocide is going to impact a potential, you know, Biden 2024 ticket? The new polls show that most Republicans across the board of all ages support Israel's assault on Gaza and that most Democrats support it except for Democrats who are 18 to 35. And that's because they're consuming social media. They're, they're less propagandized 
and they uh, exist within a much more diverse cultural context in which Palestine is an important social cause, social justice cause, and they're just more international. That is a, con a constituency that Biden counts on, uh, that the Democrats count on, who are not going to vote for him, along with Arabs and Muslims who have a lot more political power than we give them credit for. Uh, the Florida election in 2000 was partially decided by a secret deal between George W. Bush's campaign and the Muslim American community leaders of Florida, where he promised to get rid of secret evidence against Muslims if they delivered votes for him. And they had delivered tens of thousands of votes in an election that was decided by one of the narrowest recounts that had to be stopped. So Muslims pulling out support for Biden could cost him in key swing states, obviously, especially Michigan. And that's what's figuring into the Biden administration's calculations. They now are leaking that they want this war to end by January uh, because, you know, in the springtime, they want to start bringing their, you know, getting their bases, their base to circle the wagons against the bad orange Hitler Trump and tell them that they have no other choice but to vote for sleepy Joe Biden. Uh, but the young voters, the Muslim and Arab voters, they're not going to forget this along. And so along with the cost of living, which is just a disaster for working Americans and Biden's generally uh, demented character. I think it's a huge uphill climb for him and they might replace him by springtime. We'll have to wait and see. I think uh, one thing's for certain Muslim Americans want genocide Joe out, but they don't really have a whole lot of other options on the table with RFK Jr. and Zion Don. But uh, Max Blumenthal of the Gray yeah. Zone, thank you so much <laughs> for joining me here today. Of course, everyone, you can follow him on Twitter, YouTube, and his work at the Gray Zone's website. Uh, thank you so much, Max. Great mind. And always re reporting the news before actually the news reports the news. So everyone follow him along at those various platforms. We're going to head to a break, and then we're going to be right back uh, with Haz al-Din to talk about a number of issues. This is the mother of all talk shows. We'll be right back. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. How's it going, everybody? We're back here. This is the Mother of All Talk Shows. I'm Jackson Hinkle filling in for George Galloway. The theme of our show tonight is the multipolar world and how it is impacting countries all across the planet. Of course, we've discussed the situation in Gaza with the Palestinian resistance and the United States' proxy genocide there. We are going to briefly touch on the situation in Ukraine later in our segment. But uh, one subject that's really caught my attention as of late is what is going on in Venezuela. There's a really uh, odd story coming out of Venezuela about how disputed territory, which was stolen by the British Empire and given to a little known state called Guyana, is now being used uh, by ExxonMobil and the U.S. military to exploit oil and gas resources. Venezuela wants that land back. They feel it was stolen from them. They just had a public referendum about taking back this land that's rightfully theirs. And they declared it the 24th state of Venezuela yesterday. Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, announced this might set off a new war in Latin America between the U.S. military, potentially Brazil, versus Venezuela. My question for our next guest, Haz al-Din, 
will discuss this matter. So let's bring on Haas. He's the host of the Infrared webcast, which you can find on the streaming platform Kick. He's also an author, a commentator, and uh, a political theorist. So, And he's a good friend of mine. Haas, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So I think a lot of people might not truly understand what's happening here. So could you give a brief summary about what this disputed territory called Guiana Essequibo is? Why Venezuela just declared it the 24th state of their country and why the U.S. wants to start a new war over that territory? So when Simon Bolivar uh, launched his war of independence against Spain in the early 19th century, uh, Guiana Essequibo was part of the territory of Venezuela. When Venezuela, uh, uh, I don't know if it seceded, when it was no longer part of the Gran Colombia Confederation in 1830, this was part of its territory. The British, however, saw fit to decide the boundary of their own colony they got from the Dutch called uh, British Guiana. And they decided that that territory was going to cut into what Venezuela had already claimed. So uh, after 1841, Venezuela was contesting this, and it wouldn't be resolved, quote-unquote, uh, unfairly, I, I should add, until the end of the century, that century, where uh, basically uh, a tribunal was convened by the United States, Britain, and Russia, which at the time was a British ally, which said that the territory, Guyana Essequibo, actually belongs to the British, to British Guyana. Uh, fast forward half a century, uh, and British Guyana is going to get independence from Britain. So they go back to the table and they decide at the Geneva Convention of 1966 that going forward, they were going to settle this matter bilaterally. And it was never settled. However, under international law, Guyana Essequiba and its uh, and its waters were disputed territory. The issue did not raise its significance again until the late or the middle of the 2010s, where it was discovered that there was oil in the Guyana Essequibo region, which led ExxonMobil and others to flock to the region, more or less buy out the government of Guyana and uh, acquire these unprecedented rights to mine the oil there, basically ripping off the people of Guyana and drilling oil in disputed territory, which is a violation of international law. And they started drilling it. And over the past few decades, sorry, over the past decade, Venezuela has tried everything they could to get Guyana to come to the table and settle this matter bilaterally, just them two. But Guyana, under pressure by ExxonMobil, has refused. It's insisted that they take the matter to the International Court of Justice, which is in violation of the Geneva Agreement, where they decided they were going to settle it bilaterally. So just recently, the, the, the limits of their patience being exhausted, especially with the news that Guyana was inviting the United States to build a military base there, undoubtedly to protect the assets of ExxonMobil, Venezuela decided they've had enough. So they held a referendum to reaffirm their stance on the matter of the dispute that Guyana Essequibo is part of Venezuelan territory. And I believe Maduro has given these oil companies three months to leave the premises. 
and that immediately Venezuelan companies, which, by the way, are by and large state-owned, therefore sovereign, can start drilling there. They've He's issued an order to give identity cards to the residents of Guyana, Essequibo, making them Venezuelan citizens with the full rights, protections afforded by that. And undoubtedly, it's going to be portrayed and is already being portrayed as an act of unwarranted aggression, just like in the case of Russia's SMO in Ukraine, that accusation is devoid of knowledge of the context. Yeah. So so basically, this was Venezuelan land. Then the British Empire used international football politics to steal the land. Then in 2015, they found that there's a lot of oil on this land. Then the U.S. Uh, you know, controlled government in Guyana decided that they were going to invite ExxonMobil and the U.S. military down to exploit the land. Venezuela the whole time has been engaged in diplomatic negotiations, and now they've recognized it as part of their territory because the Western states are trying to steal it from right underneath their feet. So I'm curious. I doubt anyone in the West is actually thinking about this with a rational mind, but uh, maybe you could answer the question. Do you think that Western countries like the United States and the United Kingdom can afford to fight a proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, a proxy genocide against the people of Gaza through Israel, prepare for a new war with China and Taiwan, and also fight a war against Venezuela and Guyana all at the same time? The short answer is no. While the United States and its allies are very capable of destruction, when you have a popular government, especially in the case of Venezuela, where there's a militia, I believe, two million strong, ready to throw down for their government, you can't hold the territory. You can bomb it. You can kill a lot of people. You can destroy the infrastructure. You can level it. Undoubtedly, they can do that. But you can't hold it, and you can't occupy it. So the question comes down to whether or not we, the American people, are going to allow our government to commit these pointless and ultimately vain acts of destruction and mass murder, which isn't going to even succeed in the goal it sets about to fulfill and justifies itself on the basis of. Sure, we caused immense destruction to Iraq, but did we fulfill our stated goals of bringing a pro U.S. regime there? We didn't. Iraq is far more friendlier to Iran than it ever has been. And Iran is undoubtedly far more popular in the region with the actual forces which stand against U.S. imperial interests than Saddam's government was. So all we would be doing is causing murder, mayhem, and destruction, and nothing else. And we are very capable of doing that. We shouldn't underestimate our capacity to do that. But in terms of being able to stop the multipolar world, it's impossible. And it's about time we, the American people, remind our politicians and inform our politicians that their cause is in vain. I 100% I agree with you. I mean, there's no argument that could you know, convince me or I think any average American that somehow sending U.S. troops to Guyana, a country that most people in the United States probably don't even know exists, to fight a war for oil. I mean, it's just you can't convince anyone that that's in our best interest. And shifting gears here to the situation in Israel and in Gaza, 
You know, you've brought up a really good point in debates with Zionists that I've watched with you and that, hey, look, the, the Arab world did not pose a threat to the West. It did not pose a threat to the United States before 1948, the establishment of the Israeli state. So why is it that we continue to prop up the state of Israel? Why is it we continue to prop up their military and their genocide? And why don't we actually seek to have peace with all these Arab states? Do you think that peace is attainable at some point in our lifetime with these Arab Gulf states? I think that peace with the Arab Gulf states has already been achieved as far as the United States is concerned. And the real concern by these Gulf states is actually the people. It's not the government. The government would be fully in bed with Israel publicly, not just the UAE, but Saudi Arabia and others, were it not for the popular pressure in the region. They know it would regionally delegitimize them. But as far as the question of why we continue to prop up the Zionist entity in the region, the answer is a combination of the Zionist lobby and the entrenched interests of the international oil banksters in the region to suppress the growth of regional forms of sovereign power. Israel obstructs and sets a precedent within the region of division, of creating ethnostates, of conflict, preventing the natural regional integration that we have seen in the history of that region for many millennia. So it's the same more or less reason we decide to support Taiwan separatism, we decide to senselessly back the Ukrainians against the Russians, and even to another limited extent, why we are interested in now intervening in Guyana. These small proxy states serve to obstruct the growth of sovereign regional powers that won't be dependent on the World Bank and the international oligarchical bankster class in order to acquire parasitic loans that will inevitably forestall and impede their development. And when these regions are capable of development, as China has, they pose a fierce competition to the financial monopoly capital that rules the governments of the West. So it's a monopoly enforcing its interests at the expense of not only the people of that region, but even us at home. Yeah, I guess when I said, uh, can we have peace with the Arab Gulf states? I guess I meant a peace like Putin is currently enjoying. He's in the UAE today, Was he's in Saudi Arabia as well, doing big bro handshakes with Mohammed bin Salman. And in the UAE, he received a, a, you know, a grand ceremony, the likes of which I've never seen for any world leader. I mean, it was incredible. They had fighter jet pilots doing the Russian flag in the sky. It was like something I've never seen before. It seems like a lot of these Arab Gulf states, yeah, we have peace with them, but we don't have a true relationship with them based on a mutual understanding and trust. It, it's, it's not that. It's that we bought out their governments. I guess the question is, for how long can that last? And the bigger picture, I think, is how long can the Israeli state last in its, in its current context if countries like Russia and China and this new multipolar world don't support it. No, you're exactly right. And at the same time that the Gulf states are friendliest to us in the region, besides Israel, we have the State Department wing of U.S. imperialism trying to meddle in their 
uh, domestic affairs, promoting pro-democracy NGOs, and so on and so forth. So even in terms of then, we we can't keep a competent relationship. It's pure incompetency of an empire, if you ask me. But as far as the broader question of how long Israel is sustainable, if you ask me, there's two possibilities of the current genocide in Gaza. Either within the next month or two, there is a permanent ceasefire, which would be a Hamas victory, or it will inevitably escalate into a regional war. And I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the Zionist entity will not survive that regional war. Sure, we will probably get involved and commit a great deal of troops troops and military assets and cause havoc and destruction, but in the long term, who rules a region is who is native to the region, who understands the people of that region. And we don't, and neither does the Zionist entity. In the long game, they won't be able to make it out of a regional war that's protracted and is waged by masterminds of guerrilla warfare like the IRGC. Yeah, I was just talking with Max Blumenthal. It seems as though the Israeli military is suffering pretty high losses and casualties in this invasion, and they, uh, they're not getting what they expected, I guess. I don't know what they expected going into this, you know, sniper and drone heaven that they've created in Gaza, you know, with all the rubble and, and you know, destroyed buildings everywhere. It's quite the scene. Uh, it's horrific. But they're suffering pretty high casualties. And it almost seems like to me that at this point, uh, with even some of the withdrawal of these Israeli troops from the north of Gaza because of the dense level of Hamas airstrikes on their positions, it almost seems like that some of these other regional groups that you might refer to that might get involved in a regional war, that the Palestinian resistance doesn't really need them right now. It almost seems like they're doing a decent job of defending their military assets in Gaza. Of course, there's the horrific bombings, but... At this point, I mean, do you think that this could actually result in a regional war? And what do you think would be the red line that would need to be crossed that would bring us to that point? I think the red line would be if Hamas finds themselves cornered and on the brink of destruction, their allies will definitely come to their aid. I don't believe the axis of resistance is going to allow Gaza to fall. They don't want to get involved just yet because, as you mentioned, they do believe in the ability for Hamas to wage a long, protracted war. But if the ground invasion does not acquire full fruition, if they constantly just bomb, 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 and level Gaza and massacre its civilians, regional actors will be pushed to their limit. And I don't think this is going to be able to last. I mean, as others have pointed out, the amount of children being killed per day in Gaza is even more than those that were killed during the Holocaust. It is simply unacceptable and untenable. And I would be very surprised if the people in the region, let alone the governments, would be able to tolerate that for another few months. Either Israel mm -hmm. commits to a full mm -hmm. ground invasion in which they're faced with guerrilla war and a long protracted conflict, or they have to settle for a ceasefire because the alternative is the destruction of the Zionist entity itself. Yeah, you know, I agree that the regional actors have been staying out of 
heavy business, heavy fighting. You know, there's been some missiles fired, but they've been staying out of the meat and potatoes of it for those reasons. But there's one, you know, semi-regional actor, I guess, a little bit further away um, who has been working overtime, and that's Yemen. Yemen's been, uh, you know, taking over and in some cases even attacking, reportedly, some of these Israeli-owned ships that are uh, making very short sea routes um, to get to their, you know, destinations, and even launching some drones above U.S. warships in the region. What do you make of these Yemeni uh, takeovers of these trade uh, and shipping ships? What, what do you what do you make of this, and what's the impact going to be on the Israeli financial sector and their shipping uh, industry as they have to deal with these Yemeni attacks? I think Yemen is one of the rare cases we see in history where a people are rising up and defying the world's greatest power purely on the basis of defending the honor of their people. And they consider the Palestinians their people because they're fellow Arabs and they're fellow Muslims. And they also have nothing to lose. The humble and brave people of Yemen fought for years against the Saudi invasion, which was undoubtedly very destructive and took a great toll on them. And it has made them fearless and it has hardened them to the point where the United States can try to invade Yemen. They could try to bomb Yemen as much as they want. Same with the Zionist entity. What can they do that the Saudis haven't? And the humble people of Yemen feel they have nothing to lose. I mean, really, when you think about it, what do they have to lose? And it's quite a shame because Yemen is defending the honor of the entire Muslim and Arab world. And they have the least amount of money. They have the least amount of military assets and strength. But they're proving themselves, I believe, to be leaders in the region. As for the long-term consequences, obviously the United States is not going to tolerate it. One of the biggest roles of the United States around the world is the facilitation of uh, trade on the sea, even when it doesn't concern them. So if these vessels are being blocked, we're looking at a situation, and the British used to fulfill this role of uh, the Suez Canal being blocked by Nasser. And undoubtedly, that's not going to be able to last very long. But at the same time, why has the U.S. not acted uh, as severely as it otherwise would? because its hands are tied. Its hands are tied sending its most important naval assets to protect the Zionist entity in the Mediterranean. Now it has to deal with the prospect of something going on in South America. It's a disastrous situation for the unipolar world. Yeah, it really is. And when you talk about the end of the unipolar world, and this era of multipolarism that we're living through, you know, you can read people like the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin. He talks about the varying um, movements that are taking place all across the world, whether it's pan-Africanism, whether it's, you know, this anti-imperialism in Latin America, whether it's the anti-EU sentiments in Europe, um, or whether it's the, the project of the Communist Party of China and Asia, uh, when you look at the United States, you're a U.S. citizen. 
you're an American patriot. You are an American communist. And you're also soon going to be releasing a new book. What, what are the, I guess, goals that you would share with the American people about how we can properly integrate our country and for that matter, other Western countries like the UK, we've got a big UK audience listening right now. What should be the goals of, you know, Western citizens and how we take our countries back? What, what would be the main things? America's power needs to stem from its own internal strength. It needs to stem from the strength of its people and its own very abundant resources, which we're not even fully tapping into. Presently, the policy of our regime is to prop up an empire that is based on the exploitation, plundering, theft, and overthrow of foreign governments and countries, endangering Americans who have no interest in going to war and meddling in the affairs of others. As Americans, we need to take our country back in order to realize our own inner potential as a people. We need to focus on our own issues. We need to attend to our own affairs, and that begins really in my view, with getting to the heart of the matter. We need to nationalize and take sovereign control of these resources that are owned by an international bankster cartel, our energy, our natural resources, our farmland. And most importantly, we need to dismantle the Federal Reserve and have our own sovereign financial system. Once we can have these things, the source of power of the international bankster cartel, which drives us to war and intervention and causes chaos and destruction around the entire world, will be depleted. But where does that begin? That begins with Americans realizing that we are currently divided by things that shouldn't divide us. We're divided by ideologies that were given to us by the very same people we think we're fighting against. Americans need to come together as one American working class, putting away all of this identity politics nonsense and other distractions, and realize the main conflict in this country is between the people, the working class, and a ruling class, which is neither loyal to the people of this country nor the country itself. Well, if there's one person who's doing more to frighten and uh, piss off the international oligarchical elite, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, Clinton Global Initiative, whatever it might be, it's Haas Aldean. So everyone be sure to follow Haas on Twitter at InfraHaas and check out his uh, YouTube and his Kickstream, which you can find uh, by searching Infrared Haas online. So Haas, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure, and uh, hopefully you'll come back and join with uh, George sometime. I think that'd be a special conversation with you, too. All right, everybody. Well, I want to remind you, we're about to go to a break, but I want to remind you, if you want to call into the show, you can do so and email us at onairatmotes.tv. We'll be right back. We're going to be uh, diving into some more conversations and also bringing on our guest, Dan Cohen, to talk about the Israeli genocide on Gaza. See you soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. We are going to be joined next by Dan Cohen. He's an incredible journalist and also uh, the uh, founder of Uncaptured News and a filmmaker. He spent a great deal of time in Gaza reporting on the ground. So you know what he's saying is a fact and not this, you know, mainstream media Zionist propaganda. So without further ado, I want to bring on our guest, Dan Cohen. Um, and, you know, Dan, I, I hope you're doing well. And I have a question for you that just came to my desk from the IDF spokesperson who said the ratio of killing two civilians in Gaza for every armed member of Hamas is considered highly positive and actually is perhaps unique in the world. Now, I don't contest that it's unique, but how is that positive and how does a statement like that not immediately end him up in some sort of international criminal tribunal? Well, I mean, I don't know exactly what the laws of, of proportionality are, but it sounds like a flat out lie from the IDF spokesperson, which would be about the least surprising thing of, you know, heard all week. I mean, the the first major strike on Jabalia refugee camp, the where they killed uh, roughly 300 people, they wiped out an entire neighborhood block in this refugee camp. The Israelis went on CNN, the Israeli sp uh, military spokesperson, and said that they killed one Hamas terrorist in this strike. So they justified it by saying, well, there was one person among those 300. And now they're saying, oh, it's it's two to one. We're killing every you know two civilians for every one so-called terrorist. So it just sounds like it's completely made up. And of course, CNN corporate media is never going to ask them any tough questions, never going to force them you know, to uh, to admit that that's a total lie. It is a total lie. But hypothetically, I'd imagine if Putin said something like that about, you know, Ukrainian civilians, um, I'd imagine that there would be immediately, you know, war crimes charges brought up against him by every Western state because of the level of civilian, you know, casualties he's bringing about in Ukraine. Uh, so even with that, you know, official lie that Israel's putting out, that in it of itself is absurd and insane to me. Um, another really interesting point that I heard brought up this week by the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, he said that a tactical victory for Israel inside of Gaza is a strategic defeat because Israel is, you know, in effect, driving civilians into the arms of Hamas. What do you make of that? And uh, what can you decipher, if any? I know we've talked about this, the goals of the Israeli military in this operation in Gaza? Well, since the very beginning, Benjamin Netanyahu listed out two totally contradictory goals, one of them being the defeat of Hamas and the second being the safe return of the captives in Gaza. But in order to defeat Hamas, they basically have to commit genocide and, and reduce every building uh, to rubble with people inside and that's what they're trying to do to this point now they're not going to be able to do it because of geopolitical considerations the u.s 
you know, is telling them you're going to have to wrap this up in, you know, a few weeks or a month or whatever it is. So they can't fundamentally do that. But in bombing so heavily, they are killing their own people. I mean, we just we just saw testimony from uh, the the um, a family member of one of the the captives in Gaza who said that at least three people uh, were killed. Three captives were killed by Israeli bombing. And some of the Israeli captives who have come out have said this, that the scariest thing was not that they'd be executed by Hamas, but that they would be bombed by their own military. So these two goals are totally contradictory. And I think the real agenda is just to kill as many people as possible, um, including hostages, to prevent any kind of negotiations where uh, Hamas could extract concessions from Israel. Um, but in terms of, you know, the United States knows Lloyd Austin and the kind of, you know, the deep state, the establishment here in Washington, D.C., they know that Israel's not going to fundamentally be able to defeat Hamas. So they're just going to let them go wild and just bomb like maniacs because it'll enrich the coffers of the military industrial complex for as long as is politically uh, possible. Um, but I mean, even early on, in this war on Gaza, the uh, was it the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the most neocon think tanks, was already saying not long after October seventh, what if Israel loses this war? Um, so I mean that's and that's what Lloyd Austin is mentioning too now. So there are whispers. There was a piece in the Guardian. The establishment knows that Israel's not going to be able to achieve its stated goals here. Uh, so I mean. It's it's just a matter of time until Israel loses in the sense that it has all of the military power in the world and it cannot defeat this plucky armed resistance group. Yeah, it always seemed uh, ludicrous that that'd be the official goal uh, for the Israeli military, considering it's really a non-starter. Um, and it seems as though the political elite in the United States and in the West are using what's going on as an opportunity to cancel and silence any government dissidents, uh, even those that are, you know, maybe mildly critical of the government and are, are wary about this genocide that's taking place. This week, uh, Congress, United States Congress, passed a resolution um, equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And of course, it was passed by a bunch of Zionists in the United States uh, House of Representatives. What do you make of that of that you know statement coming from our own government that Zionism is somehow uh, equivalent of uh, anti-Zionism somehow equivalent of being anti-Semitic? Well, first of all, it just shows the incredible power that the Israel lobby has in Congress, which you know, if as as Congress just did equates Judaism with Zionism, well, that's just it it, it show they what they're saying. Is it's it it reinforces an anti-Semitic trope of Jewish control. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of ironic. But if you actually just break this down logically, if we say anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, then that means Zionism inversely is Judaism. So if Zionism is Judaism, well, who believes that? Zionists, of course, and Nazis. That means that all Jews, myself. Uh, the religious Jews of the the thousands of Satmar Jews who live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, who uh, oppose the state of Israel on theological grounds, they oppose Zionism. They're all anti-Semites, or they're all, all they're all not real Americans, is what it means. It means they are all 
the only way that you can be a Jew, according to the U.S. Congress, is to be loyal to a foreign country, loyal to Israel, that that is my real country. And it's not my country at all. I have nothing to do with it. And those Jews completely reject it because of principled, actual, real Jewish beliefs. So with that statement, that resolution is, is an affirmation of anti-Semitism. It is anti-Semitic itself because it says that the only way you can be Jew is to be loyal to some other country. And therefore you are a fifth column. You know, I, as a Jew, am a fifth column in this country. That's straight up anti-Semitism. So it's really troubling. I mean, it's, I'm not worried that, you know, I'm going to be like, it doesn't have any legal teeth. It's just a stupid resolution. Mm -hmm. But you think about the climate of McCarthyism in uh, universities right now. It's going to be used to crack down on students who are protesting um, for for uh, to end the, the genocide of Gaza and in the professional realm where, you know, after after what, how many years where we've people are forced to uh, say, oh, we accept diversity and LGBTQIA2S plus, you have to go along with that and show the correct position. The work was politicized. The workplace was politicized. Suddenly, if you have if you want to express your political opinion that you oppose genocide, suddenly you're an anti-Semite and you have to be fired. That's what this is really about is is cracking down on free speech and doing away with all dissent. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears back to the to the you know daily life, I guess, of average Gazans right now. You've been to Gaza, and there was a viewer who emailed in a few moments ago during our previous segment, and they asked the question, uh, Jackson, what happens to the children who've lost their entire families in the bombings? Are there like organizations that are able to um, essentially like uh, foster these children, the, these orphans? I mean, and. I, I thought about it. I've like, I asked the question myself. I've never really considered that. It seems like most of the videos I see today from Gaza, the life there is about focus on getting food, water, electricity, and making sure that they save as many people from these bombings as possible. So what can you speak to the life of uh, Gaza? And I know you are in constant contact with people there about what it's like to live in this open air prison in the midst of this unprecedented bombing. Well, I mean, it's just beyond anything that you or I can imagine. I mean, I've been in Gaza under bombing. I've seen 13, 4, 13 14 story towers taken out by American supplied bunker busters um, in in what an Israeli general compared to 9-11 saying that this was like 9-11 uh, for Gaza. You know, comparing the Israeli military favorably to Al Qaeda, I actually watched them say that. But I mean, that was in that was in 2014. What's happening now is just a complete different scale than anything we can imagine. It's I don't even have words for the level of just horror that that Palestinians in Gaza are suffering through on a daily basis, constant bombing day and night, maximum a couple of hours of sleep. Um, And then at any point, you can just be exterminated, you and your entire family, with the flip of a switch. And, you know, they have the unfortunate choice of basically dispersing into different homes or different parts of the home, hoping that maybe someone will survive if uh, they get bombed or maybe you can all stay together. So then you, you know, if when you have your last moments together, 
Um, that's that's the choice Palestinians are being given in Gaza. And many of them just choose to stay together because nowhere is safe. So you might as well be together and die with your family instead of being alone. In terms of the orphan children, which of the of which there are many, I mean, inside Gaza's hospitals, which are, you know, most of them are not functional anymore at all. There was a term uh, it was like no remaining uh, injured, no remaining family members of babies and small children whose entire families have been exterminated. And there is no social support for these kids who are, t- you know, maimed and barely survived. They have no family that's going to take them. So how is Gaza supposed to deal with that? It's just the most horrifying, criminal, shocking uh, actions possible. And there has to be accountability. If this, if there's any kind of civilization in this world, Netanyahu and his band of war criminals and Biden and all of the the enablers here in Washington should be on trial for genocide. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, it seems as though whatever goals Israel had in this operation, uh, they're beginning to already recognize, at least the, the rank and file are beginning to recognize that it's completely unachievable. There was a report from Al Jazeera, which I, you know, we have yet to, I guess, get 100% confirmation on, but they said uh, that up to 70% of Israeli troops in the north of Gaza may, in fact, begin to be facing a, a potential withdrawal from the north of Gaza because of the level of Hamas and resistance airstrikes on their positions there. Can you comment on that and, uh, you know, share what you may have heard about the situation for those troops in the north of Gaza? I mean, it's hard to know what exactly the reality on the ground is. But, you know, the Israelis, like if you read Israeli media, the front headlines are always, you know, encircling Khan Yunus. The, it's it's always about the, the incredible success the, the Israeli military has. It's just total propaganda. But then we see these videos that Hamas and Al-Qassam, it's armed wing, are, are releasing of their fighters basically smoking Israeli soldiers and Israeli tanks. And there are images that have uh, um, uh, come up, come out um, of, you know, a graveyard of Israeli tanks and armored vehicles. So it's hard to know what exactly the casualties on the Israeli side really are, though they have, of course, every reason to hide those real numbers. And I mean, the most stunning video to me was the one that came out yesterday where uh, a Kassam fighter popped out of some tunnel, just poked his head up with a camera and and you see Israeli soldiers walking around. So it suggests that the Israelis, I mean, look, they want to say they are in control. Hamas never tried to stop them from really fully coming into Gaza. That's not what a resistance movement does. It doesn't go for a full-on clash, military against military. It's death by a thousand cuts. That is Al-Qassam's strategy. So, you know, the Israelis can, you know, blow up buildings and post videos of all these kinds of things and make themselves look strong and undefeatable to the outside world and to their own public. But, I mean, the reality is they just simply cannot control Gaza, which has a very sophisticated uh, armed resistance, multiple factions that all work together, and a very complex tunnel system that they just simply don't know what to do with. Um, so, I mean, how many have, are they? I, I don't know that they're really thinking of the withdrawal. It could be, you know, I think as long as they can keep um, the secret of how many soldiers are actually getting killed, they'll want to stay in there. 
and they've and I think this yeah. this uh, genocide will go on for a few weeks yet before they'll consider anything. But I mean, no doubt they're taking more casualties than they're admitting. Of course. And one last question for you about Netanyahu, because as we all know, prior to this uh, war breaking out, we saw that Netanyahu was facing a lot of criticism from within his own country, a lot of big protests, actually, even about how he was stacking this, uh, you know, this Supreme Court in Israel and other concerns of corruption that stem, uh, you know, far further into the past for Netanyahu and his family. Um, we're now witnessing something really odd take place. Netanyahu had a meeting with the families of hostages who are still inside of Gaza. And he told those families that he's not going to be able to free all of the hostages. And that caused an uproar at the meeting. Also, we saw that a family, uh, one of the families of these hostages who's actually been freed and back in Israel, they refused to meet with Netanyahu upon their return. So what does this speak to Netanyahu's political future in Israel. Is it limited? Do you think it's going to last for the remainder of this war? And uh, what's the sentiment like for average Israelis on the ground towards their government? Well, back in the summer, when the protests against Netanyahu and his judicial coup, uh, which basically sought to do away with the last kind of um, facades of Israel's so-called democracy, um, getting rid of the Supreme Court, essentially, the protests were so severe that it internally people thought the gov- the state might collapse according to the times of israel 30% of israelis were considering leaving the country altogether so now that since there's a war that has been temporarily papered over there's because of wartime unity but i mean there's no doubt that once that ceasefire comes uh, it's going to be, you know, Netanyahu's head is next on the chopping block. The public is going to come after him. I mean, he is seen as a centrist in Israel. Everyone thinks he's far right. And, you know, I mean, sure he is. He's a fascist. But in on the Israeli political spectrum, he is the hollow center. Uh, the, 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 the real right wing is who's who who put him into power in order to protect his political career. And so once they don't need him anymore and they smell weakness, um, they'll do away with him and Netanyahu will basically be finished. I mean, he's the longest serving prime minister in, Isra- in Israeli history. And I think he's basically done for. This is his last hurrah. And we see that the United States is basically looking to get rid of uh, Netanyahu, too. That's been clear for a couple of months because the asset has become a liability. And so even during those protests, you actually saw the U.S. hand inside uh, in those um uh, the former prime minister, Ehud Barak, confirmed that they were basically using color revolution style tactics to oust Netanyahu because they need someone who can maintain the facade, the mirage, the lie of Israeli democracy. And Netanyahu is just too dirty now. So they want to bring in someone kind of weaker, more pliable, like Yair Lapid from Yeshatid, uh, the, the, who's who, the opposition, or someone like Benny Gantz, the former defense minister. Um, who, you know, those guys are just totally weak and will do more or less whatever the U.S. tells them. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I uh, can't wait for the day in which Netanyahu's out, I think for the for the rest of the world and especially for Palestinians, it's probably going to be much worse to have a, a, you know, a happy liberal face on the cover of genocide that's taking place. And the world will probably, uh, you know, look the other way once that takes place, unfortunately. So, 
Anyways, Dan Cohen, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And everyone, be sure to follow Dan. Uh, well, on Twitter, you can follow him at Dan Cohen. Uh, he also does great reporting at Uncaptured News. That's a, it's new that you launch Uncaptured News, right? Yeah, it's really just since October 7th that I've decided to just put all my all my effort into it full time. So it's yeah, I think it's Uncaptured yeah. News on Twitter and uh, Dan. I'm Dan Cohen 3000 on Twitter. So check me out there. Great. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Again, greatly appreciate your expertise. Call here from TJ in Louisiana to talk about Russia and Israel. TJ, how's it going? Hey, Jackson, it's going pretty good. I really appreciate you coming on uh, the show tonight. And uh, I've been following you for quite some time, uh, actually, since you were, since you just started on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I, I I think you did a really good job on uh, the beautician and the beast when you were on their show, and you just pretty much dismantled two two guys at one time. But uh, they seem to they seem to light pit two and three guys when they debate you, and uh, you know every time every time you uh, seem to debate, it's like you're always debating more than one person. And uh, I appreciate you you know coming on tonight. I was going to ask you. Uh, about the the situation in uh, in Gaza right now, uh, Israel seems to be burning the candle at both ends because uh, they, they they're going to get their way because it's not just the bombings ramping up and they this 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 horrible ceasefire agreement which we knew they was going to start that bombing, but then as soon as they get you know as soon as they uh, released a few hostages and then they said they can't save them all. Of course they they don't want to save them all. It's just this is a clear genocide. And, uh, you know, George Galloway, he, he came to, he was, uh, there was a, a meat filet program known as the uh, Oil for Food program. And he, you know, testified in front of Congress here back in the States against uh, uh, Norm Coleman, who actually lost to Jesse Ventura in the, uh, in the Minnesota race. And uh, he, and, Je- and uh, George Galloway was uh, heavily against the oil for food program because it only provided 30 cents per Iraqi per day for, uh, for food, clothing, medicine. Uh, and it was, a, it was a terrible program. And, uh, and, uh, I was going to ask you, uh, where do you see, where do you see, uh, do you, uh, anybody coming in and stepping in? Like, uh, I think George had a really good idea about sending a hospital boat over there and said, if you blow this up, and then you're going to, like China's sending a hospital boat over there. Uh, and if you blow this up, then we're going to we're gonna retaliate against you because we're trying to save lives. If, do, you, do you think something like that should be done along those lines? Or maybe more, more since, uh, or maybe another way to get aid to the to people of Russia? Yeah, you know, I heard that idea about, uh, you know, some sort of a, ship that could provide medical aid. I think that's actually a great idea. And, you know, the craziest part of all is it does not have to be China that ships uh, a, a medical boat all the way from China uh, to the people of Gaza. It could be as simple as, you know, the UAE. It could be Saudi Arabia. It could be any of these Arab Gulf states. It could be Turkey. Turkey, you know, Erdogan, he had this great march for Palestine. He's wearing the kafia. He's saying, you know, Israel's a, they're genocidal actors, they're war criminals. So they all talk big game, but they're not willing to do anything. That's why I think the idea of China or Russia is so um, probably on the nose with what uh, is one of the only outcomes of something that could happen like this, because they're the only countries 
who actually have balls, their leadership, Xi Jinping and Putin, they're the only ones who are actually willing to take a stand against the U.S. Saudi Arabia won't cut our, um, you know, kind of not really. The UAE, definitely not. They're co-opted by the Zionists. Egypt won't. Jordan won't. Turkey is a, you know, NATO state. They won't. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I uh, appreciate that story about George. George is obviously a living legend and i've been very honored to host the show tonight and um we're gonna wrap things up and uh, i just gotta say yeah big thank you to george galloway for letting me host the show i know he's on, on uh important business in the uae and he also is uh you know maybe he got to say hi to putin while he was in the uae i don't know we'll have to wait and see but uh, for those of you who are looking to follow along with my work you can do so at The Dive with Jackson Hinkle on Rumble. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jackson Hinkle. They've banned my show from YouTube, Twitch, a whole host of other platforms. So follow along on Rumble. Support us over there. Thank you so much, everybody, for your support. It's been an honor and a blessing to host the show. Uh, we, we discussed a number of very important subjects Russia, the Ukraine war, Gaza, with everything happening with the Israeli genocide, and even the situation with Venezuela and, uh, you know, Guyana Esequibo. So in this multipolar world, what we need to do is keep fighting, fighting for the truth and countering the BS propaganda. Thank you all and good night.